And now I am extremely excited to say that we are going to invite Caroline Kittle to come and preach for us this morning. So yeah, give her a hand. So Caroline helped us plant the church, and I don't know if you guys know, she was serving as Ken and I's admin, but she's like the most overqualified admin in the world. She's got her master's in women and gender studies, she's worked in social work, and so I think it's, it's a flexible job while her kids were young, but man, has she just like really grown into it, and we're seeing her pastoral giftings flourish, and so watching her grow into a, a very pastoral role has been really fun. So now she's director of our youth group, and I think the youth ministry is, I think the kids are really enjoying her and loving her. I'm seeing Abby smiling, so that's good, and probably Sue's daughter. Um, and she's also an outstanding teacher. So let's give a hand to Caroline. Give her. Okay. Hi, thank you. Um, yeah, like Emily said, I'm, I'm Ken and Emily's assistant and the youth ministry um, director right now. Um, okay, so we're celebrating Lent, and um, this is the second Sunday in Lent. Um, but during Lent, um, it, the, these 40 days parallel the time that Jesus spent in the desert. So at the end of 40 days, um, he faced temptation before beginning his public ministry. Now, typically, um, Christianity, frame, we frame temptation as a way um, to bring us down from a place of respectability and self-control, right? So we are strong, but giving into temptation makes us weak. Um, we are respectable, and temptation threatens to degrade us in some way. But I think Jesus kind of flips that on his head. Jesus was humble and weak after those 40 days, and he, he knew he was a child of God, but he was tempted to do three things. He was tempted to turn his hunger into immediate satisfaction by changing stones into bread, and to turn his humility into a show of strength by testing God. And he was tempted to turn his poverty into wealth and power. So he was, um, he was not strong in being tempted to be weak or lose his respectability. He was humble. He was hungry, he was poor, and he was tempted into becoming a strong man with immediate satisfaction, a thriving ego, and all the glory that seems to come with wealth and power. Instead, he relied on his identity as a son in his relationship with the God of Israel. He aligned himself with all people of all genders who are humble and weak. So, um, during Lent, Hold on. Um, okay, so during Lent, we're focusing on this book. It's an incredible book by Howard Thurman, Jesus and the Disinherited. Um, we read this book in our Theology on Tap small group um, a couple years ago, and um, our conversations really impacted my understanding of the book. So Thurman wrote this book in the 1940s, and it was from the depths of his own experience uh, as a black man born in America, living through the 20th century. He unflinchingly understood the harms that Christians had done against people based on race, religion, and national origin. Yet he found in the religion of Jesus a solution for all people who, as he put it, have their backs against the wall. So it might be kind of obvious, but speaking about this, um, it, it can be a daunting task for me, especially as a European American. 
a US citizen and addressing a Christian church. Um, I had this joke about the blonde leading the blonde, but I don't think I can pull it off. Um, but I, I, I mean, honestly, I just, I can't see what I can't see, you know? And so um, it's, it's easier for me to share about um, personal experiences or my identity as a woman or even my mental illness. Um, but my experiences of otherness doesn't mean that I can know all there is to know about another other. But God who sees each of us fully, does know. And God calls us to reach across our divides with love. So Howard Thurman's prophetic work, it shows us how the gospel can be read as a manual of resistance for the disinherited. And now more than ever, I really do believe that we need a manual of resistance. Um, and in Blue Ocean Speak, when we say, for the disinherited, we mean for the victims of scapegoating, lately. And within my understanding of intersectional feminism, um, for the disinherited means for the survivors of intersecting systems of oppression. So it's kind of a mouthful, but in Jesus' language, this means quite simply for the persecuted, the hungry, the poor, and the poor in spirit. Jesus' ministry to the hungry, the poor, and the persecuted, um, it always seemed pretty incredible to me, and it influenced my career choices. So although I stopped going to church, I spent 10 years of my career trying to do Jesus' work, but honestly without Jesus. Um, I, uh, I worked as a special needs camp counselor and in the mental health field. I worked uh, in violence prevention in Chicago public schools and was a case manager in the foster care system. So I hope to use my strengths to be help to those in need. So after college, I packed up and moved to the hot, dry, southwestern desert of Phoenix, Arizona. I worked at a residential treatment center for teenage girls. Um, and since then, I've maintained a friendship with one of the incredibly resilient girls that I worked with there. Um, Clarity knows this story, but um, she, she once told me that the main thing she remembers about me, beside our friendship connection, was that I cried all the time. <laughs> like, that's what you remember. And I'm sure I was super effective crying all the time. Um, but the point is, I thought I was strong, but it turns out I was pretty soft. And I think it is so important to give and serve and love others um, that may come from a religious calling or it may just come from being human. But trying to change others from a position of strength, it's not all that transformational. And for Howard Thurman, he says it's utterly beside the point what the religion of Jesus has to offer to those of us who want to be helpful to those in need. He says the most pressing and urgent question is, in the religion of Jesus, is there help for the disinherited? What really matters is what Jesus offers us when we face our own 40 days in the desert, when we are humbled, when we are hungry, when we are up against the glass ceiling or our backs are against the wall. And all too often, powerful politicians or well-established churchgoers have used the Christian message as a tool of the strong over the weak to administer to people in the margins as they see fit. And this is nothing new. Howard Thurman witnessed a Christianity that supported slavery, 
um, justified segregation through Jim Crow, and later he lived to see a church that considered the civil rights movement and, quote, a prostitution of the church for political purposes. And I wonder what he would think about Christianity's role in justice today, especially with Black Lives Matter, founded by three women, two who identify as queer, and then also what we see with the threats against Jewish community centers and the plight of working class poor, the targeting of Muslim refugees and undocumented immigrants. And those are all examples of targeting based on race, religion, and national origin. But here at Blue Ocean Faith, we have witnessed a Christian movement that officially supported uh, the exclusion of LGBTQ folks from marriage and pastoring under professions of Christian love. So like I said earlier, one experience of being other doesn't mean that we can know all about another other. But still, I think Thurman's question remains powerful and relevant. What help is there to be found in the religion of Jesus for the disinherited? So Jesus was a Jewish man, and he was familiar with the same kind of discrimination that threatens all people with, as Thurman said, their backs against the wall. Um, he grew up in the ragtag town of Nazareth, which is actually, Ken told me, one-tenth the size of Milan. Um, he was born to an unwed woman, poor, and living under Roman occupation. We can witness in reading that manual of resistance, the Gospels, that Jesus' solution in his relationship with the God of Israel was liberating. It was transformative. And it cannot be touched by birth, circumstance, or identity, but at the same time, it cannot be understood without them. <clears throat> this liberation, it um, enabled Jesus to serve people, to serve others, but not from a position of strength. Thurman writes that Jesus' solution for himself and for Israel is the word and work of redemption for all downcast people in every generation and every age, and it's rooted in the prophets of Israel. So it's impossible for Jesus to be understood outside of the sense of relationship that Israel held with God. Even the seemingly unique ideas of Messiah, the divine son of man, death and resurrection, they were all deeply embedded in second temple Jewish thought prior to Jesus of Nazareth. And the history of anti-Judaism has its roots in the global trend of pitting the strong against the weak. It's important that we move away from dismissing the deeply Jewish context of the first century originators of our faith. And just because Christianity became, through the years, a religion used as an instrument of oppression, it must not tempt us into believing that this was right with Jesus. It is written that in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. Wherever his spirit appears, the, fresh, the oppressed gather fresh courage in the face of their fears. So Howard Thurman identifies three hounds of hell that dog the disinherited. There's um, fear, deception, and hatred. Um, so I'm preaching on fear, <laughs> and um, of course. And fear is one of the hounds of hell that we're studying today. Um, so it affects us all in different ways and for different reasons. 
Um, but fear has deep, deep roots in the relationships between the weak and the strong. So for the poor and the economically and socially insecure, Thurman describes the constant fear experienced from the conflict around them as a climate closing in like the fog in San Francisco. And I think we're seeing this today among the poor and many different groups targeted for separation and exclusion. For the dominant group, though, Thurman also shows that fear insulates them from a sense of wrongdoing when they carry out policies leading to more separation. So I want to try to say that again. For the dominant group, fear insulates them from a sense of wrongdoing when we carry out policies that lead to more separation. Um, an example of this is with David Gushy, who came and spoke here, a friend of Blue Ocean. Um, he studied what Jews have come to call the righteous Gentiles during the Holocaust. And less than 1% of Christians actively resisted the Nazi agenda of separating Jews from the general public. And they did this at first ideologically and then physically. However, Gushy also found that resistance was far far stronger in places with good quality Jewish-Gentile relationships. And so I think this reveals the great power and importance of loving across the divide. Fear can also affect our belonging within groups when we're together in fellowship, trying to love across that divide. Um, Thurman says that when we don't belong in the normal ways to belong, there is deep insecurity. Our physical bodies are so often the focus. Our brain chemistry, our sex, our melatonin, our physical ability and our physical attraction to certain people all mark us as vulnerable to exclusion within groups that we belong. And fear of rejection may lead us to change ourselves to fit in or even force us to check parts of ourselves at the door. So Lisa Ruby um, shared about checking at the door expressions of her love, of love for her wife, Lisa, um, at the old church, and the relief that comes when we can all belong, when we can belong in groups as our full selves. Um, but I know that some of us might still check parts of ourselves at the door. And a friend of mine who grew up Hindu, um, she said, don't be offended, but I told her I'm going to say this anyway. So she, um, she came to Blue Ocean to see what, I, what I'm up to these days. And um, she said affectionately, I think, that we seemed like a bunch of Ann Arbor hippies. <laughs> she forgot the Mylan, Dexter, Celine, and Ipsy, and Chelsea, and Ipsy hippies. I saved Ipsy hippies because it rhymes. Um, <laughs> Anyway, but, but she does know that, all, that, that these hippies all come from all walks of life. And one thing about Blue Ocean Faith is sure, many of us have felt that we don't belong in the normal ways to belong. So the last point about fear before I discuss the solution, um, fear may also lead us to withdraw, especially when we just don't have the energy to insist that we do belong. And we should insist that we do belong. But even when we persist and insist on being full members, dominant members may carry out practices to put us back in our place. So fear truly is a hound of hell. And Jesus was surely no stranger to fear, and his death was an attempt to put him in his place. 
Yet radically, he understood that he was born from above as a child of God. He also understood himself as the divine son of man. And some Jewish people, like I said earlier, some Jewish people believed this teaching about him and some rejected this understanding. But this wasn't because this was a foreign concept to them. He just didn't fit expectations. And the thing is, Jesus didn't want or seek validation from people around him. He wanted life for the people around him and sought only the glory of God above. His conviction that he was God's child absorbed the fear reaction and immunized him from human scrutiny. So despite being among the disinherited and violent acts to keep him in his place, his understanding of profound self-worth made him unconquerable from within and without. And in this, he calls us to follow him. So when we are in the presence of God, of I am who am, we free ourselves from the scrutiny of our fellow humans. We turn instead to face the one who concerns themselves with every hair on our head. So be careful not to lift another human being to a place of superiority that belongs to God and God alone. It is written, be not afraid of them that kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. And even if we doubt the existence of God or come from different faith backgrounds, um, I think this still can make sense in our everyday understanding. Um, and this is sort of my shout out to the scientists. The, um, the genetic difference between humans, all humans, is exceptionally small. It's less than 0.1%. And we are all so much more similar than we are different. And I think that that can reveal our, our childlikeness about ourselves. That was not in my notes. Um, but our social reality is that if we don't fit in or submit into society's hierarchical order, we run the risk of being marginalized, expelled, or killed. Our physical bodies and our mental health are at risk. And so we must find ways to overcome this fear. And I'm, like I said, I'm the last one to be without fear. And, and I even cry when I see other people's fear or pain. But there is hope in this teaching for the disinherited, hope for all of us. There is treasure buried in the field of religion. It's not all that religious or different to buy into the idea that those in power and comfort are superior to other groups. And I know studies have shown that we all do this to some degree. And this has been true from Pharaoh to Caesar to today. But God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So if you are among the disinherited, it is truly radical to claim inheritance from God the way Jesus did, the way Israel did. It is radical for women and gender minorities to claim equality with the sons of men and even to be sons of God. It is radical for the queer and the excluded and the poor to receive the kingdom of heaven. And praise be to God. So one last story. Um, <clears throat> keep doing my water, help me through this. Um, 
I went to Emily in prayer for prayer in 2012. Um, I was distressed and told her that I was afraid that if I asked God into my life that I would get sick again because I had been hospitalized for symptoms of bipolar disorder and psychosis in 2008 and I was starting to experience symptoms again. So a week later, um, they took me to the psychiatric emergency room and I passively, but very firmly, my mom remembers that, resisted any medication. And so they forced me to receive antipsychotics through injection. Now this was a humiliating violation of my body and mind, but it is legal and justified in today's mental health treatments. But after it was all over, I walked back out into the main room and a little boy of about eight or nine years old came up to me. And he looked at me and said, it looks like you could use a hug. <laughs> and so I said, okay, and he gave me a big hug. Now, I don't know why he was in the emergency room. I imagine that he was also experiencing some distress because it was kids and adults in the, emergen the psych emergency room. Um, but anyway, I felt seen and I felt God's presence. And reaching out to this child, I ruffled his hair. And for some reason, I said, God knows how many hairs are on your head. Yeah. And we laughed at this, but for me, it was such an important moment that God knows us, each of us, so intimately that even in our most fearful moments, we can resist and recover from dehumanization with dignity as children of God. So in conclusion, rather than focusing on what the strong can do for the weak, Howard Thurman's book shows how the Gospels can be understood as a manual of resistance for the disinherited. And though tempted, Jesus did not become like the strong man, seeking immediate satisfaction, a thriving ego, and worldly power. Instead, he relied on his relationship with the God of Israel as a child of God. And this gift, this gift of profound self-worth absorbs the fear reaction and readies us to walk in the way of the Lord. This way of resistance against the powers of this world does not guarantee ease or comfort, but it does guarantee life. Okay, so at the end of our sermons, um, we usually do a three-minute meditation. So um, I wanted to read three verses from Isaiah 30, and I want to read, I forgot my phone, oops, um, do you, for timing, I just need something for timing. Um, okay, thank you, okay, um, all right, okay, so if you could just take a deep breath. Um, feel your feet on the floor and your legs on the chair and the breath moving in and out of your nose. Isaiah 30. Truly, O people in Zion, inhabitants of Jerusalem, you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. So breathe in 
and breathe out. And try to bring to mind something that makes you cry out, something that you struggle with. Give your cry to the Lord. Breathe. And though the Lord may give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. Breathe in, breathe out. And when you turn to the right, or when you turn to the left, your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. So breathe in, breathe out. Focus on your feet again. These are the feet we are called to wash for one another the feet Jesus would wash if he were in this room. Focus and feel your feet on the floor and listen for the word of the Lord. This is the way, walk in it.